so we, we are in the middle of a series uh, kind of parallel to our 100th anniversary celebration. We are spending some time looking forward as well. We are remembering what God has done for us in the past, in our first century, and we are looking forward to what God will do in our second century. I've entitled this sermon series, Crossroads, but I've, I've called it Crossroads because we are a church at a crossroads. We have our first century at our back, and we face a fork in the road and a choice of where to go. We can be a church that continues to have our best days behind us, continues to fade in influence, or we can be a church that dives into a renewed mission for our second century that really takes seriously and passionately God's command to make disciples. And as we, as we sit at the crossroads, we have a series of, a series of values that our, our session has, has talked through, has prayed through over the, over the past several months that we, that we firmly believe, and this is rooted in Scripture, this is not just our opinion, but we firmly believe that our church should adopt, that our church should dive into in order to be the church that God wants us to be in our second century. In 100 years, that we will be a church that really dives into these values. And in the year 2119, or whatever it'll be in 100 years, people will look at us and say they were a church that truly made disciples well over their first two centuries. Last week, we sort of talked about the primary value there, making disciples. And the reason that's our primary value is not, first and foremost, to get more butts in these seats. I would love to have that happen. That's not why that's our primary value. It's not even because God commanded us to do that before he ascended to heaven, right? Jesus' last command before he went back to be with his father was make disciples of all nations. That's an important reason for why we do that. It's not the primary one. The primary reason we as a church make disciples is because we want to see our friends and neighbors who do not know Christ, who do not know about his forgiveness and grace, who do not know that they can be accepted, not because of the things that they have done, but they can be accepted because of Christ and Christ alone. We want to see people come to faith in Christ and turn to him so that they can know that they are God's and that they are held fast by Him and not any works that they may conjure up in and of themselves. That's what we want. We want to see more disciples made. We want to see more people come to faith in Christ. That is our goal as a church. In order to do that, in order to both you know, bring people into the fold of God and, and help and encourage believers who have been believers for maybe a brief time, maybe for decades. But in order to get to that place where we are all full and mature disciples, our church has outlined four different things, four different values that we're going to dive into, and we're going to explain these in the coming weeks, one of them today. 
four different things. Those things are joyful worship, humble growth, radical hospitality, and generous service. You can see those written out on the right page of your bulletin at the bottom. That's our mission. That's what we do as a church. Today we're talking about joyful worship. There can be a temptation sometimes for a church that is too inward focused. If, if the, the knowledge comes that they, they need to change and do something, the, the temptation can be to leave behind the inward focus and, and go too much and focus too much on the things that we do outside these walls. I want to encourage us not to do that. Sometimes people say that the most important thing that the church does is serve the community, it's to be the church outside the walls. I'm not sure that's the case. Those things are important. It's important to serve the community. It's important to host people in your homes and to welcome people into your lives. It's important to meet with other believers in order to you know, have humble growth, in order to disciple each other. But the most important thing that we do as a church is right here on Sunday mornings. It's worshiping God in his sanctuary. If we look at the story of the Bible, if we go right all the way to the beginning and all the way to the end, we see a couple mirror pictures of each other. Right? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. At the end of the story, God creates the new heavens and the new earth. At the beginning, God dwells in the garden with Adam and Eve. We don't talk about this a whole lot in the church, maybe we should more, but the, the garden was sort of like a temple. The Garden of Eden, the center of it was sort of like the Holy of Holies, where the Tree of Life was. Adam and Eve would go and they would meet with God in that place. The New Jerusalem, at the end of all things, is also sort of like a Holy of Holies, where the Bible says God will dwell with humanity and we will be his people and he will be our God. But in the middle, we have a different story. The beginning, humanity dwelling with God, perfect relationship with God. At the end, humanity dwelling with God, perfect relationship with God. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve got kicked out of God's presence. They no longer dwelled with God. And the story of the Bible has, it has a number of themes through it, but one of those themes is the theme of God's presence with us. The scripture we read earlier from, from the book of Exodus was the story of Israel creating a tabernacle, a tent, to be replaced later by the temple. But it was this place where the Spirit of God would come down and dwell, very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. But the ancient people of Israel couldn't just walk in there and experience the full presence of God, right? They couldn't just brush the veil aside and waltz in. No, they had to go through the sacrifices. God's presence was mediated. You had to bring an animal in order to meet in the presence of God. And when we're talking about the very, very center of the temple, right, the holiest of the holy places, the only person who could go into that was the high priest, and he could only do that once a year. And he could only do that if he did everything, you know, just so. He offered the sacrifice right. right? Tradition says that he would walk in with a rope around, tied around his leg, because if he didn't do it just right, they didn't want to have to send someone in after him and risk the wrath of God again so they could just pull him out. God dwelled with humanity, but it was, it was mediated. 
Then when the person of Jesus Christ comes, right? John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwell there is the same word for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent in our backyard. God himself became human flesh. And Jesus, is, he's, the, he's the ultimate expression of God's presence with us, but when he was on this earth, it was masked. God's glory was masked for a time, hidden. And we had little glimpses of God's full glory, of Jesus, you know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, him coming in all of his glory. But for the brief time he was on earth, he was fully God, fully man, but he didn't fully bring his kingdom. He lived the life that, he was, that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved, and he rose again for our salvation. And then he, instead of establishing his eternal kingdom, he ascended to heaven. One of the things he said before he ascended to heaven, he says, I'm going away, I'm going to my Father, but I'm going to send a comforter to you. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And so now we are a people for this age, until God comes again. Right? We're looking forward to that day where, at, where the Garden of Eden is restored. We look forward to that. But until that day, we are a people who experience God through His Holy Spirit. I say that for this reason. Sometimes we think, just the way we talk as modern Christians, we say, oh, Jesus lives in my heart. Oh, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives, in with, God lives with me, and I take Him wherever I go, and I can commune with Him wherever I go. There's a sense in which that's true, but that's not really the biblical picture of things. See, when the Bible says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the your there is plural. Yalzis body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Plural your, singular temple. What he means by that is that the body of Christ, the church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is made clear in Ephesians chapter 2. Right, the story of how, even though we are sinners, God brings us, Jews and Gentiles, together and builds us up into a temple for the Holy Spirit. Now, when I say that the church is a temple, I'm not talking about these walls. Right? This drywall is not holy. It's just drywall. It's the same stuff as you got in your house. You know, I could punch a hole in this, and it's not like I would earn the wrath of God. I would just have to fix it, and it would be expensive and annoying. What is holy is when we gather together, right? What does Jesus say in the book of Matthew? He says, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So the way we experience God's presence here and now primarily, just as Adam and Eve would walk into the Garden of Eden and meet with God, just as one day we will walk into the New Jerusalem and meet with God, just as the high priest would walk in, you know, with a sacrifice, doing everything as he should, walk into the Holy of Holies to experience God, the way we experience God today is when we come to church on Sunday mornings. That's the primary way God works in and through his people. There's something about the gathering in the morning not the morning. There's something about gathering as a church, usually on Sunday morning, that you don't get when you're on the lake, that you don't get even when you're just reading your Bible for your personal devotions. That's good to do. 
It's not a replacement for gathering as a church, because this is the sanctuary of God. Not the building, but the gathering of the people. This is how we experience God. So if this is the place where we come to meet with God, how does that work? What what does that actually look like in the gathering? In our Reformed tradition, we would say that we experience the presence of God in two ways. In word and in sacrament. By the sacraments, we mean baptism and the Lord's Supper. So if we want to experience God, we experience Him when the Word of God is read and preached and proclaimed, when we are baptized, and when we take the Lord's Supper. If you don't believe me, let's go to Scripture. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and active. Sometimes we think of, you know, the Bible is just a book that was you know, written 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, translated for the modern day, and it's just kind of this dead thing that, you know, it maybe inspires us sometimes, maybe tells us some good things to do, but it's really just the same as any other religious book. No, 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 no. The Word of God is alive. It is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It works in our hearts to convict us and to draw us closer to God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, says that the Word of God... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, the word inspiration is tricky, because when we use it, we mean like, oh, like a painter saw a sunset and was inspired to write a painting. So we think, oh, we encountered God, so they were inspired to write the book. But the word literally means breath, like respiration, breathing in, breathing out. That's what the word inspired means. Scripture is breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit works in and through Scripture actively to change our hearts and to change our lives. Let me read, if I can, from Isaiah 55, uh, verses 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So, in the same way, shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's Word, when it's preached, when it's proclaimed, when it's read, works in our hearts, works in our lives because it's being sent by God. Not because it's magic, not because it's just a book full of a lot of wisdom, but because God is sending it, God is using it to work in our hearts. The book of Romans, verse number 10, puts it a little less poetically and a little more clearly. Paul writes there, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So the way in which God brings faith to our hearts is not, it's not something we conjure up ourselves, but when we hear the Word of God, God's Word goes forth, does the thing for which it is meant, does the thing that it's meant to accomplish, and creates faith in the hearts of those whom God has chosen. And it continues to draw us closer and closer to Him. So when we talk about how we experience God in the church, 
right, on a Sunday morning as we gather in. It's not because we enter into a holy building. It's because when we have the Word of God proclaimed, when we gather together, it does a work in our hearts. It is God drawing us to Him. But being good Reformed people, at least many of us, we have Word and sacrament. The Bible, Scripture read and proclaimed, and also baptism and the Lord's Supper. Augustine, one of the church fathers. Augustine's one of the few guys that just about every Christian, right, Catholic, Protestant, you know, everybody looks back to this guy. He wrote um, about 300 years after Christ. Everyone looks back to him as this great theologian. We all hold him highly in regard. He wrote that the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are a visible word. A visible word meaning that they are a material, tangible, touchable, feelable way to hear the gospel. So when an infant is baptized or when an adult is baptized and they, they feel the water go over them or they're dipped in the water, they, they hear preached to them by their senses that their sins are washed away because of the grace of Jesus Christ. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, Right, when you bite down on the cracker or bite down on the bread as your teeth tear it apart, we are reminded that Christ's body was broken for us. As we drink the cup, we are reminded that his blood was shed for us so that we can have redemption and forgiveness for our sins. It's a physical, tangible way to hear the gospel. Again, if you think I'm making stuff up, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I didn't pull this up. I've got to pull it up. Just a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Corinthians were a church with a lot of problems. If you read through the book of Corinthians, there are a series of issues that Paul addresses with them, from church discipline to marriage and singleness. But in this section, they're having problems with the Lord's Supper. And in fact, one of the, you know, the words of institution that we read before, right, this is my body broken for you, shed for many, that, that one of the words that we read is from 1 Corinthians 11 because Paul goes in depth on it. But when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, here it is, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Right? When, we, when we take of the Lord's Supper, it's not merely just us remembering what God has done for us, but we are actually participating in and receiving the grace that is in the bread. Earlier in the chapter, he writes this. This is verse number one. He says, "'For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers.'" that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There's a lot to unpack there. We're not going to unpack that today. Maybe later. Verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Spiritual food. Spiritual drink. If you're familiar with the story of Israel in the Old Testament, they, they left the land of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and instead of going right into the land, they, they were rebellious and they didn't want to go in, they didn't trust God, and so they, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until a new generation rose up. It's really hard to feed people 
in the wilderness if you don't have like trains busing, you know, all kinds of food in. It really is a miraculous thing to keep a large group of people alive. Fortunately, they had God who led them out into the wilderness. And God provided them miraculous food and miraculous water. They had the manna that came down from heaven. Right, every morning they would go out and they would gather just enough for that day and they would eat it and they would be physically nourished. There's the story of how Moses smacked the rock, right, and the water came gushing out so that the, the people could drink a river when they were thirsty. But that's physical nourishment, right? They were physically hungry, so they ate the physical food. They were physically thirsty, so they drank the physical water. Paul here says that it's spiritual. So even though they ate physically, the act of eating in some way nourished their faith. They trusted God that when they were gathering the manna right in the morning, they were only supposed to do it for the one day and they weren't supposed to do it for the next day. If they didn't trust God, the, food, the extra food that they saved for the next day would spoil. Eating and drinking was trusting God that He would provide for their needs. They ate physically and they ate spiritually. Paul is saying that when we come to the table, not only are we eating physically, and we are eating physically, but we are also eating spiritually. We are receiving a grace in the Lord's Supper. That's why we call it a sacrament. There is grace in the thing because of the Spirit, because Christ is the one. He sent His Spirit. That's how we experience Christ. He sent His Spirit to us, and we receive His Spirit in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. And indeed, when, when the church in the book of Acts, they're first meeting, they're growing, they're becoming, you know, spreading throughout the world. Whenever we have meetings of the church in the book of Acts, their meetings focus around those two things, word and sacrament. That's what they did. Acts 2.42, we're going to talk more about this in coming weeks, but this is what it says, and they were devoting themselves. It was an ongoing thing. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the preaching of the word, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, communion, and to prayers. Acts chapter 20, verse number 7. On the first day of the week, right on Sunday, when they were gathered together to break bread, to do communion, Paul talked with them. And the word there is talked, but it goes on and talks about how, how Paul was preaching, and he preached a really long time, and that was when Eutychus fell out the window. That's a different story for a different day. But that's what they were doing. They were hearing preaching. They were taking the Lord's Supper. That's what the church did when they gathered. That's what we do when we gather. What does this have to do with making disciples? This is the primary way we see disciples made. The Word, as it goes out, makes our hearts alive. It draws us closer to God. As we hear preaching, right, my preaching is not special because of any abilities that I may or may not have. My preaching is special purely because it's the Word of God preached and proclaimed. Purely because it's the Word of God preached and proclaimed. But that Word of God works in our hearts to draw us closer to God, to make us more and more like Him, to be a people who love God, who love our neighbors. It's making disciples. And there's a real, there's a real beauty 
in this picture of us entering God's sanctuary and receiving. In the Old Testament, they had to bring an animal to be sacrificed. Right? The high priest had a series of instructions if he was going to go into the Holy of Holies. He had to do things just right. We don't have to bring anything to come into God's presence. We only have to receive. That's because Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has paved a way for us. We don't have to come in. We don't have to write... It's not that we, you know, pay our tithes and offerings as dues in order to come into God's presence. It's not as though God receives us because we're generally good people, at least, you know, the kind of people who wake up on Sunday morning and go to church. No, God receives us because of Christ. And when we come in, knowing that all we do is receive, we hear the preaching of the word and God draws us closer to him. We go to the table, eat of the bread, drink of the cup, receive God's grace. It's a picture that God loves us how we are, and he's working with and in us to change us. But we don't have to earn God's salvation. It's purely of grace. Sometimes people say that if we, you know, do communion too often, then it loses its meaning. Well, that's only true if we bring the meaning to the table. But that's not what happens. We receive God's grace when we partake of it. It's a blessing to us. So when we come in on Sunday morning, when we hear the word of God preached, when we receive the blessing in the table, we experience the presence of God. But we shouldn't, all, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we don't see the presence of God fully. Right? There's no cloud of God's glory that comes down on Sunday morning and fills this place that we can't bear to look at. We have not yet seen God come to dwell with man forever as we will on that final day, as is described in the last two books of Revelation, or the last two chapters of Revelation. But when we encounter God, we are reminded of the day when we will fully dwell in God's presence. That day is coming. And that fact should fill us with an expectant joy. And I often talk about the difference between joy and happiness, and I think it's an important distinction. Even though we may enter God's presence on a Sunday morning full of grief, full of pain, after all, we live still in a world that even though it's being redeemed and being broken and we look forward to the day when it will be redeemed in full, we still live in a broken world. So we can enter this place in sadness and grief Maybe not all the time. Maybe you're having a great day. Maybe God's blessing you and praise God for that. But you don't have to come in in superficial happiness. But even when we come in in sadness and grief and pain, when we experience God's presence, we are reminded of what's coming and we are filled underneath with a deep joy that undergirds our sadness, that even though we may mourn, we are reminded of what God will do and what God is, in, what God is doing. It's joyful worship. I want to read Psalm 27, if I can. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet will I be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above all my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. The psalmist here is surrounded by enemies. And though we, you know, we don't really have military enemies who are you know, besieging our house or anything, we have other enemies. And we can be reminded that though enemies surround us, yet we find shelter in the Lord. And it can be our prayer to dwell in the house of the Lord with him all the days of our life. The psalmist was filled with an expectant joy through his troubles as he went into the presence and experienced God. The grace of God as we encounter it in the worship of his people, as we gather together, it drives us to joyful worship. Sometimes we can confuse worship with, you know, an emotional high that we get with a really good speech that someone gives, right? a really good prayer, a really moving thing, a really, a really good song with really good music, you know, a key change. You know, we don't really do this in our church, but, you know, like a fog machine with lights. I'm not saying, you know, this idea is limited to those kind of churches. We can find it here as well. But thinking that our experience in worship with God is an emotional one that we get from singing certain songs or experiencing God in an emotional way. It's not. We experience the Holy Spirit of God when we hear the preaching of the Word, when we partake of the sacraments. Sometimes it may drive us to weep in joy. Sometimes it may drive us to raise our hands in praise. Sometimes it might not. But when we come in, we experience God. We turn our hearts in praise to Him. We pray to Him. We sing songs of praise to Him. We turn in our hearts and we fully worship Him. And it's not dependent on the quality of the music or the quality of the preaching or anything. It's dependent purely on the grace of God that we receive. The fact that God has given us his word, given us the sacraments, we receive it and we turn in joy. It's how we express our love for God. To summarize, if we can, church is something special. We encounter God in a unique way in this place when we are gathered together that we don't encounter him out there. We receive God's grace through the preaching of the word, when we receive the Lord's Supper, when we receive baptism. And we are filled with expectant joy as we experience a foretaste of the redemption that is to come. And in response, we turn in our hearts and give joyful worship to God. I want to conclude, if we can, with the reading of Psalm 84, which I intended to read at the beginning of this, but I did not. Hear these words 
from Psalm 84. And then we'll pray. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord our God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Will you pray with me? Lord God, as we as a church consider how we can make disciples, as we consider what it means to bless our neighbors, to bless each other, to bless our community, O oh God, Lord, I pray that all of that would flow from the grace that we receive on Sunday mornings. As you work in our hearts by the preaching of the word, as you give us faith, as you pull us closer to you, Fill us with a passion for your word that we may bring other people into this space. Once again, Lord, not to put butts in seats, but so that other people may experience the wonderful grace that we have experienced here in this place. That other people may see that they are not accepted because they do good stuff or because they were baptized or because they grew up Christian, but that they are received purely because of the blood of Jesus Christ. May we spread that message to each other, to our neighbors, to our community, and around the world, O oh God. And may it flow from this place that you have called your temple. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.